Hello and welcome. We are the Right Wing Dharma Squads. I am your host, Dharma Kirti, joined by Aura, Kagyu, and Storm. If y'all want to say hi. Hi, everybody. Hello. Hello. <laughs> and uh, we are today discussing again for the third time uh, Julia Zavola's Doctrine of Awakening, which is just a really, really fascinating text. Um, very well, as we've discussed before, very well researched. He has a lot of technical detail. He, I, I would say he doesn't necessarily interpret everything in a way that I think that a um, someone who is a part of a traditional, is it of a grounded, like historically and textually grounded Buddhist tradition would agree with. I certainly don't, but it, it, it's um, definitely a serious text that, that um, is, is worth taking seriously and also manages both to identify the errors, the more, I would say, more serious and consequential errors of Schopenhauer and Nietzsche in, in mischaracterizing Buddhism as some kind of just, you know, uh, flaccid retreat from the world or kind of cowardly refusal to engage with um, ordinary reality or something on the one hand. And then on the other hand, although th this wasn't, I don't think, an issue for him necessarily in his time, it is very much an issue for us in our time that Buddhism is, uh, again, mischaracterized, I guess this time, not so much as a retreat from the world necessarily, but as some, as a fig leaf justification to drape over uh, social, quote unquote, social justice, left-wing politics. Obviously, that's one of the major reasons why, you know, all of us here are, are doing this and why we call this <laughs> the right-wing Dharma squads, et cetera. Um, and yeah, he, he makes it very explicit. He says, you know, no, this is a heroic endeavor. This is a kind of martial endeavor in a sense. It's, it's something that, you know, we need a kind of warrior mindset of a certain sort. And um, that, that this doesn't mean, this doesn't, on the it's not, there's nothing left wing about it um, in any sense, really. And um, I think that's true, obviously. Again, or I wouldn't be doing this, but, but I, I would also, um, I'd be curious if someone disagreed. I don't know if anyone in our audience now or ever really would but I, I would i would absolutely love to debate this at some point if, if someone were interested but anyway yeah those are just those are just my thoughts um i wanted uh i did do we have any um there's a couple things i'd like to say yeah, at please. the top um first of all uh we've gotten in the past on the live stream some excellent questions and funny comments um, and I would just encourage uh anybody who listens to this or future episodes uh, who's listening live to go ahead and Put comments in. Um, anything that's interesting, we'll try to address directly on the show, uh, or at least yeah, we host on. App. Yeah, absolutely. We host on Podbean, so you can leave comments through the Podbean app if you want. You can also uh, um, find me on Twitter at Real Dharma Kirti for now, uh, and Real Dharma Kirti at protonmail.com for now. Um, we have a question from the cert already in the chat. Why, why not right wing Dhamma squads? Cause we only have one Theravada. Dhamma is the, uh, Pali, um, spelling of the Sanskrit word Dharma. And as I am, uh, a Sanskrit Buddhism guy and I am the, I don't know, uh, <laughs> I, I, I insist on proper Sanskrit pronunciation of things. Uh, yeah. And why. also <laughs> Dharma is also one of those words that speak that is a so important and b yeah. so um, well established 
in in a uh, well, it's it, a cross cultural that, or cross religious term. I mean, Jains refer yeah. to their thing as Dharma. Hindus refer to their thing as Dharma. It's like an Indic religious. I mean, not, yeah, not even just Indic, but yeah. So I I took a year of Mandarin in college, and I learned the Pinyin system for transcribing um, Mandarin, which I think is is actually really good. It's the one that makes the most sense. Um, but uh, in Pinyin, you would write Dao, D-A-O, Dao as in like Taoist masters, yeah. um, or the Dao of Pooh. <laughs> um, <laughs> but it is so well established in the, I forget what the name of the other, uh, one of the other systems is. Uh, Wei, as Wei Gao. Yeah, the Wei Gao system. Um, it's so well established in the West as TAO that even as a Pinyin user, I will, if I'm writing it, say on Twitter or something, I will use TAO because people know what I'm talking about. And I think Dharma has reached that level of, or almost that level of, of recognition in the West. And that's just the word we use, whether we're talking in a mm, Pali, oh, well, not Pali, but whether we're talking in a Theravada or, or Mahayana perspective, I would say. Also, it just sounds cooler, in my opinion. Yeah, I said that before on a previous episode that I, despite being somebody who who follows a school that that pays way more attention to the Pali canon, I just like the way Sanskrit in general sounds. It's much more aesthetic. Yeah. M I H O. Okay. Um, I so, wanted, was, wait. So I had wait. So sorry, Dharmakirti. I had two things I wanted to say. One was uh, again a call for comments. The cool thing is we're getting more listeners, uh, but the the other cool thing is we're still so small that we're totally able to respond to individual comments. So now sort of the golden hour, if you like our show, if you want us <laughs> to comment, you'll, you'll actually get a response out of us. Uh, and the second thing I wanted to say is that uh, just as a general point, to reiterate a little bit of what you just said, Dharmakirti, what's cool about this book is it's, it's kind of just like engaging with yet another person on the podcast um, who, who has an idiosyncratic take on Buddhism, but who takes it seriously, who, who wants to share the ideas with people and, and who has found them very engaging. And, you know, because Buddhism is so new in the West, you know, in, uh, it's still in the process of, you know, getting translated and, and that kind of thing. And like in the 19th century, it was so new that like almost any any study of Buddhism from the from the 19th century that I've come across is is almost just giving you the very basics, uh, at least as they see them at the time. And then everything post-1945, or especially say post-1968 or whatever, is so drooped, dripped in all the same shit that every <laughs> every other book on every other subject is is dripped in. So there's this very small window of time when you could get, you know, somebody like Evola to to give you a mature Western interpretation of Buddhism that isn't a just trying to introduce the concept of, that it even exists, <laughs> or b already become this sort of you know hyper postmodern gay luxury co communism take on it, as Storm would say. Yes. Todd, no. Yeah, please jump in. No. I I think with, uh, I mean, it's, it's interesting because Evola from, I mean, what I understand was actually a very serious scholar. Like he actually himself read Pali or Sanskrit and was able to read the original texts himself. And um, I kind of was reading this whole thing wondering, you know, why doesn't he just come out and say uh, and endorse Theravada? Because, I mean, the whole message of the text and how he references back to the Pali canon, it's it would seem that he's kind of making an endorsement of Theravada, but then 
right close to the end, he suddenly says, well, you know, really you could see like the two major schools of Buddhism have kind of both degenerated. And so uh, Mahayana has gone into this intellectualization. Uh, Theravada has gone into the direction of moralization. And I just, it was a little bit surprising because um, here I was wondering, you know, why is he not endorsing this? And now we finally see why did, was Evola just still kind of this right-wing equivalent of spiritual but not religious and never attached himself to any particular path because it seems that whatever was available today was a degeneration of what he perceived as this original. And I guess that's just another fault. And Which is a cope. I just want to be clear for people in our audience that that's a massive cope. Oh, it is. Absolutely. Um, and, and it's not that there's like, I don't know how to say, it. I'm not, I'm not blaming him. I, I, I think this is, you know, it's common for good reason, good in the sense, not that it's like something you should do, just that, you know, it's very understandable. Um, but yeah, no, I mean, it's, uh, the, at the end of the day, and we got into this a little bit in our episode on teachers and we I want to do that, come back to that topic at a later point, but so much of this really comes down to being able to, to submit your will to that of a superior, more realized being. And, and that means all kinds of things. I mean, fundamentally what it means is letting go of your pride, letting go of your ego. And, and I think that's, you know, more than anything else, what I'm getting, whenever people kind of go off in this direction in terms of, you know, oh, well, Buddhism used to be this, <laughs> how do you know this? Well, I don't know, because the texts, according to my reading, say it in a certain way, and it used to be this pure thing, but then it got all this other stuff attached to it, and therefore I don't have to actually follow a teacher, or I can do some meditation, but I'm not going to believe in reincarnation. He has a bit about reincarnation that I want to maybe talk about later. But um, yeah, I mean, I just, you know, I, 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 because I have this idea in my head of this pure and perfect thing that used to exist at some point in time, um, that no longer exists because reasons, uh, then I, therefore I don't, I can kind of do what I want or cobble together bits and pieces of what I like and remove the parts that I don't like. And yeah, I mean, you should definitely investigate. I mean, there's always, there's definitely a play. I mean, there's a kind of, um, overused, but nevertheless quite relevant and well-taken, uh, metaphor from a sutra that, uh, Tibetans use a lot, which is, uh, that, you know, the, the teaching is like a piece of gold and that you should, you know, like if a goldsmith is presented with a bit of metal that someone wants to sell him that is, you know, he says, oh, this is gold. Well, before he buys it, he should, you know, cut it and rub it and, and examine it and make sure that it, you know, is actually gold. And, you know, th th you know, this gets, again, kind of overused, but it's definitely true that we should, you know, that there's a emphasis on rational analysis in the Buddhist tradition. That's definitely true. And that there's a sense of, you know, of responsibility of, you know, really, taking it upon ourselves to investigate. But that, but that's not the same thing as just sort of this prideful refusal to um, be a part of a tradition. That's, I mean, that's what I would say. And I think with Evola, it's, it's, it's pretty apparent if you actually, if like you read Revolt, he has this image of like this primordial religion that is kind of embodied in the, yeah. uh, I mean, especially embodied in the Rig Veda where you have like this, this almost, it, it has like this kind of two tier system where there's some people who can attain like this higher knowledge and that the vast majority of people just are completely incapable of it. And insofar as Buddhism agrees with his pre-existing worldview of this kind of religion, he agrees with it. But insofar as it doesn't, he tries to walk away from it. I think that's fair and accurate, actually. 
Well, that actually, those comments seek perfectly into what I was going to cover uh, on this show, which is at the end of the book, Evola goes heavily into what he thinks about Zen, Chinese Zen, and uh, Chinese Zen primarily, Japanese Zen less so. Um, and he kind of sees that, he sees the development of Zen in its idiosyncrasies as, as a mirror of the original situation when the Buddha got his enlightenment, the tradition began. You know, he sees uh, Shakyamuni Buddha as, as an iconoclast kind of rebelling against the, the rationalism and the, the formalism and ritualism of the Brahmin caste dominating uh, spiritual matters in India. And so, you know, he, his narrative is you have that and that's pure. And then Evola talks about how the Theravada and the Mahayana sort of degrade that away from the primordial tradition into two different things. Was it moralism and uh, what was the other one? Aura? Like he said, Theravada degraded into moralism and Mahayana into intellectual speculation. That's I right. That's right. Saying. Yeah. So he sees the Zen as being sort of like a, a almost like a back to the roots uh, reemergence of that original spirit uh, because Zen practice takes place fundamentally outside of any kind of moralism or any kind of uh, intellectual speculation. Al although those things are used within the tradition, everything is seen as a means to an end for um, you know the wordless realization of enlightenment that, that you get for yourself. And this checks a lot of the boxes uh, that Evola is looking to get checked. You know, he sees that as it's more aristocratic for him. Um, especially because he sees it as more masculine because there's a lot of there's violence involved and it's harsh uh and also it's it's sort of self-motivated like you're it's not seen as as i'm going to learn this uh this enlightenment from my teacher it's more like i'm in battle with myself and the teacher is simply an advisor who's someone who can help guide you but you have to do it yourself so he, to, to him that he, he likes zen a lot because of those things and um you know, I, I kind of agree with that. It was, it was almost, it almost has like a maybe a Protestant feel to it, where it was, you know, this has become so convoluted that the actual central goal has become obscured by ancillary things. So we're just going to wipe all that away with one fell swoop and get to the very core of the matter, just like what happened with uh, the Buddha and Mahakasyapa. And I've talked about this before on here, but I'll say it again. Um, Zen proper started when the Buddha was, you know, he had, he had gathered all his disciples together and was going to give a sermon. And, but actually what he did was he picked a flower and he held it up and one, everybody else looked all, you know, befuddled and confused by that. But one person understood and that was Cassiapa. And, you know, the Buddha says only Cassiapa understands. So I'm going to I'm going to transmute to him in this moment, my, my wordless achievement, my wordless wisdom, realization of the Dharma. And that was when Zen began. And since that day in an unbroken lineage, if you believe it, which I like to think that that's true. Uh, and if you believe the transmission of the lamp documents, it's all laid out how exactly it happened. Uh, but that's that's the process. It's 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 uh, a realization that's completely outside of any kind of words and letters, right? And he makes some really interesting comments uh, on Zen. Um, and I've never heard it put this way, but this is actually a great description. He talks about uh, what's called the voice of the inanimate. And there's a, a quote I really like. I think it's from it's either, I think it's from Huining, and he talks about how. Everything everywhere is at all times silently preaching its perfect dharma. Like uh, the perfect dharma of your keyboard is the keyboard. There's no mediator. It's the you're getting you're getting a transmission from the most immediate. And he quotes an unnamed master as saying, "The grass, mountains, the trees, the ocean, the stars, the sea, and the moon 
with this alphabet, the Zen texts are written. Uh, he also tells, um, you know, my favorite, one of my favorite Zen masters is Master Yun Min. He was sort of like the, the last Zen master of the golden age of Chen in, uh, in China. And uh, he tells the story, you know, Yun Min had been practicing for quite a while. And um, he had gone from temple to temple and masters were fond of sending their monks to other places to see another master Zen. And that kind of helps you get the message in different ways from different people. But eventually, um, Yun Min's master slammed the gate on him so hard that it broke his leg. And, and the pain from that was able to clear his mind enough where he perceived the Dharma for the first time. Yun Min tells that story, but he tells it wrong because he tells it <laughs> as Yun Min's arm getting broken. But that wasn't it. As we can see in the later text, that Yunmin always carries his famous staff, which is the most powerful weapon in Buddhism, is Yunmin's staff, hands down. And uh, he carried the staff because he couldn't walk right because his leg was all messed up. Um, another thing that he, he talks about that's pretty central, and it is, it's one of the best tools for explaining what Zen is and how it works to people. It's, there's, so, there's sort of three stages on the Zen path, right? Um, when I began to study Zen, Mountains were mountains, and the ocean was the ocean, and air was air. During the study of Zen, mountains are no longer mountains, the ocean is no longer the ocean, and the wind is no longer the wind. When you achieve Zen, mountains are again mountains, the wind is the wind, and the ocean is again the ocean. So what this is talking about, and it, it kind of links up with the ox herding pictures. I don't know if you guys are familiar with those. Um, the what? The 10 ox herding pictures. No. Okay. I don't know. I don't yeah, know I know what you mean to, to describe them. Okay, so there's it's it's almost like the hero's journey. So the ten ox herding pictures um, are about sort of the seeker's path to enlightenment, and it goes clockwise. And number one is in search of the bull, aimless searching, only the sound of cicadas. The next step is discovery of the footprints. It's when you get an inkling of the path to follow. You've been practicing for a while. You're starting to see what this is about and how it works. You've got perceiving the bull, but only its rear, not its head. So now you know where you're headed, uh, and you have, you're starting to get a feel, a, a wordless intuition of the wisdom. Then you catch the bull, a great struggle. The bull repeatedly escapes, and discipline is required. So this is a stage in which you're, you're, you're going through cone study. You're, you're having the one-on-one -on -one dokusan with your teacher. It's very intense. You're, you're locked in a struggle with your own mind. And it can be really intense and emotional and, and stressful. Um, then the next one is taming the bull. There's less straying, less discipline. Uh, the bull becomes gentle and obedient. Then you move on to riding the bull home. Great joy. And that is, those are your moments of Satori that come along the way. Not complete, but you've now amassed so much, uh, so much you know, merit, wisdom. Uh, you're so far along in your practice that now you can start to see through uh, the word maze and see things as they are. Then you have the bull transcended. This is the point where you're actually able to let go of the teachings themselves. You're no longer bound to the teaching of Zen and the content of Zen that's keeping you from actually seeing the Dharma. And that's the bull transcended. The next step, uh, both the bull and self are transcended, all forgotten and empty. Then we have reaching the source, unconcerned with or without the sound of cicadas. And that is when you perfect your, uh, you perfect your path and you actually get it. And that would be your final satori. And the next part, which I consider to be the most important step on this, and and sort of like what we're doing, is the return to society, a return to society, crowded in the marketplace, spreading enlightenment by mingling with humankind. And this is sort of like the motive cycle that keeps that keeps going, um, and how that relates to the three statements about the mountains. You know, when you begin, you're totally mired. Um, 
in attachments, delusion, trapped in words. When mountains are no longer mountains, they simply are what they are. This is when the teachings has had a, have had its effect on you, and you can see, uh, you can see another way. Then, when you move back to uh, knowing that mountains are mountains, you have access to both ways of looking at things, which corresponds to the two truths doctrine, and neither one of them obstruct each other. And these all these are all things that uh, Evola sees as having that aristocratic air, that self-motivated air. Uh, it's from the outset because of the Chinese minds, uh, the way they think about nature and the way they think about combat and battle and war. Uh, it just it goes it, it really turns them on. It goes right back to what he's looking for. Um, and that is put pretty much my take on Evola and Zen. I think he has a really good understanding of it. I think uh, he's essentially right, in my opinion. It's it's a fully esoteric uh, branch branch of of Buddhism. So you guys have any questions on that? Yeah, or? I had never. Well, uh, I mean, uh, there's a lot we could go into, um, but my first question is what related to one of your last points because he used the word esoteric when talking about Zen, and you just repeated it, and that there's a kind of a lot of there's a there's a lot to unpack there. But so I guess the first question I have is what do you what do you mean by esoteric when you're referring to Zen as esoteric? Okay, so. Esoteric, it essentially corresponds to the, primor the primordial tradition idea. Um, you know, there's there's a a worded part of the teaching that you can understand. That's where that's where you hear a Dharma talk and you understand it on its face and you just believe what's said to you, right? And then there's another understanding of it, which is is it's almost like a subtext, right? So things that are esoteric are kind of moving beyond words and getting at something that, that really can't be contained within words and things that are exoteric are kind of like plain, plain wisdom. That's for everybody. Right. Does that sure, make sense? I guess it does. But then my question is how, how, I mean, because to my understanding, uh, you know, even in, in the Theravada context, it's not like you can really say, you know, that the Vipassana is capturable with words. Um, or that the jhana, I mean, you can talk, you can like describe the jhanas um, in various ways. They're uh, uh, maybe you need to define our terms. Um, jhana is a, jhana is the Sanskrit word jhana in uh, Pali. And these are um, traditionally in the kind of older, uh, yeah, like the Theravada type materials. There's four of these jhanas. Um, actually, the word Zen is the Japanese form of the Chinese word Chan, which right. is the Chinese form of the word Jhana. And uh, the so this, these four Jhanas are like, there's. I mean, I actually don't. This is one, one of my areas I'm weakest on. I, I don't really know how these are all. And it's like basically increasing levels of calm and insight to where you kind of have a gradually more and more refined understanding of the nature of reality. And then finally, like the whole thing goes away. And, and in the earlier materials, there's like descriptions of, you know, different bhikkhus, different monks going like up and down in different jhana states. It's, it's, I think, one of the marks of attainment that you can like go at will from one jhana into another, like either up or down. Um, yeah, I mean, to me, that corresponds to, to the Oxfording pictures. And it's just essentially like different stages sure. on the path. And they're not necessarily linear because if you stop doing mm -hmm. what you're doing and you, and, and you know, you allow yourself to slip, don't keep up your practice, stop caring about it, you can absolutely go backwards. You know, mm. it can happen. I've seen it happen. Mm. Now, could Zen be considered esoteric because it exists within a somewhat initiatory framework in the same way Vajrayana does, where you have like this kind yeah, that, of... that was one of, the, one of the 
ways I was going with that. Yeah, that I'm curious. Is that I mean, yeah, sorry, Storm, go on. No, yeah, that's essentially right. I mean, you're you're gonna get different things out of it as like a, a lay person hearing is in sermon and as a monk who knows the material and, and knows sort of the um, the subtext of the whole tradition itself when you listen to it. So yeah, I mean, yeah, it's esoteric in that way. It's also, I mean, fundamentally I'd say it's, it's esoteric because the meaning and, and the goal are just fundamentally not graspable by understanding things. It has to be intuited totally outside of that, which is the whole point of this branch of the tradition. And to me that, that makes it esoteric full stop. That's, that's just how I think of it. Yeah, so I, I, I mean, in a sorry. sense, that makes all of Buddhism esoteric. That's what I was getting. Yeah, I was wondering, like, I mean, so then how would you di like, how would you di differentiate? Maybe it doesn't matter well, between I mean, esoteric and esoteric Buddhism. Well, like, okay, like uh, Pure Land School is not esoteric. You just they tell you what to believe and what to do and do it, and that's it, right? Yeah, so, I don't know enough to say, but that seems that's the impression I get. Yeah, I mean, that's really pithy, but that's pretty much it. I'd say cultural Buddhism in general is, I, there's like, with Buddhism, at least outside of the West, it seems that there's kind of this like cultural framework where you have people who are just doing things in general, like making offerings to monks or, and that's, that's exoteric, but the actual teachings are pretty much always in an esoteric framework. Think yeah, of it, think of it, yeah. uh, think of it like this, right? Let's say, okay, you're a, you're a villager and you believe that, oh, I'm going to do good works and, and follow the path as much as I can. And. I might achieve enlightenment in a future life and 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 uh and, a, and an auspicious reincarnation right and you just go with that but then there is the es esoteric understanding where the reincarnation is is happening at all times and the one moment of detachment in your mind incarnates you um out of the tathata and into delusion where things are differentiated so there's two levels of understanding here right you yeah. know if i if i have a moment of grasping and then I'm pulled into delusion. I've now incarnated. But if I if I'm not doing that, there is simply the suchness. Yeah, that's what I mean. We say in the Tibetan thing, like you know, that would be an esoteric understanding. Of the, yeah. When you when you realize it, you're a Buddha. When you don't realize it, you're a sentient being. And that's kind of like that's. I think that's the third Karmapa um, formulation. Yeah, I think for Evola in in this, uh, it and maybe what you're also saying, Storm, is that. It's a question of emphasis. So, you know, I, I uh, was talking a few episodes back about Ajahn Mun and how, and also King Rama IV of Thailand, who found, you know, a Buddhism that was the kind that Kagyu was talking about, which is, um, you know, making amulets to ward away uh, spirits and then like making offerings at the temple and uh, using certain forms of address when talking to monks and everything, all of which could be well and good. It's not necessarily to, to talk down on that stuff. But what, what frustrated Ajahn Mun was that he, that no one was like sitting and doing meditation, searching for enlightenment, right? Yeah, you can't, um, you, it's good to do the exoteric stuff, but you can't stop there. And I think what Evola is, is, is finding in, uh, in Zen is, is a, a very, very, um, pointed content, a very pointed emphasis on, on that esoteric side of things. So, you know, if the question is to what degree, if Zen is esoteric, then what, why, how, how are any of the other schools exoteric? And we could, we could say, well, they're not. I mean, they all, they all Buddhism has this, you know, uh, the central experience of the Buddha as, as 
as the the ultimate goal. Um, but certainly, you know, the way things have gone down through the ages over many different lands and through different languages and cultures, certainly the emphasis has been very different in in different places. And Zen well, is, I, I mean, I, I this is maybe getting far. I mean, it doesn't matter, but it's um, far afield. But I, 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 this was one of my earliest kind of like, I guess you could say, proto red pill moments. Is I actually think that that's always the case. There's not like you in order you're only ever going to have a handful, a very small handful, maybe like single digits or single hand handful of real, you know, master virtuosos of meditation in any given kind of social context at any given time. You need a massive social infrastructure in order to support that. You need householders supporting monasteries, monasteries supporting you know, like just, just a couple guys, typically guys, sometimes, you know, I mean, there are female men, but usually it's men, obviously. Um, and, and, and there's just so much, I mean, a society needs to be able to like, and, and if it's, if everybody tries to be, you know, which I don't even, I mean, getting back to the sort of what Evola was saying about, um, you know, this path not being for everyone, that's true. It's not for everyone in this and, and not everyone should try really to be that kind of master. Um, but in order to have that kind of master, in order to keep the tradition, that kind of pure wisdom lineage alive, you need to have so many cultural and economic and social and, and et cetera, you know, conditions in place, which is why, I mean, one of the many reasons why, you know, as, as someone who is like, you know, I, I try as much as I can, I, or, or I mean, I, that's not true. I, I'm very lazy. But my point is like, you know, I, I, I dedicate myself in a certain way. I think we all do to practice and to um you know, trying to do our parts. Even so, like it, it, it's just, you know, I, I wouldn't be, it wouldn't be possible for me to do these things if there weren't, you know, um, external conditions that, that, that all, you know, as limited as they are in the West, they still exist. The, the point I'm making is just like, I, I, um, I used to be very like, um, I was like, well, what do you need all this? You know, what do you need? Like if you were really quote unquote Buddhist, wouldn't you just, you know, or whatever religious, um, wouldn't you just go and do it as hardcore as possible? And that's true to some extent, but it's actually really mostly true that um, in order to support that, you need all those exoteric, just the offerings, just the, you know, and for monks to be a in order for you. Yeah. In order to have a neat master race, someone must make the tendies. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> 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 yeah, but that, but unironically, like, like yeah, absolutely. unironically, yes. Uh, something else I'd like to say, and I'm, I'm just trying to say this whenever there's an opportunity, is that there's a temptation, especially from other schools, to kind of just like view the Zen, the Zen stuff as silly, and some of it is actually silly because sometimes people get so serious that they need a little bit of that because the seriousness has become a block for them. So, I think it's it says a lot about the power and resilience of the Zen school that there is no doctrine that sustains it. Every single piece of, of doctrine can be wiped away and, and disregarded or gone past for uh, in lieu of actually, or so you can actually get the real personal experience of enlightenment. And, and despite there being no sort of um, philosophy to pin it down and make sure it doesn't get corrupted to this day, it remains uncorrupted. Now, there are places where it is corrupted, and there always will be, uh, particularly like SoCal Buddhism and stuff like that. But despite not having that kind of uh, doctrine to lean on, it's, it's stayed pure to this day. And I know a couple other people from – actually, two other people from the same teacher as me. And uh, 
you know, when I, when I talk to them, there's that wordless awareness of each other is there. I mean, you can just look at them and see it. And I've met a couple other people in my life like that as well. So I guess that's just my general response to the, to the silliness critique. I mean, it, it is cute. I get that. No, I, I, you know, I never, I mean, I, you know, I never, um, I always kind of had an interest in Zen. It wasn't, it didn't, um, I just, I guess I just sort of fell in with, with Sanskrit Buddhism and then that's just sort of where I landed. But uh, the, the thing is like I, coming, like hearing you talk about Zen and now seeing the koans myself, it's funny because so much of it lines up so well with with my own um, experience and understanding. Like, for example, when you're talking about the ten bowls, which I now that you mentioned, I, I, I was reading it quickly, but I think Evola does go through them um, to some extent. It, you know, it, it's not a quite the same thing, but but in in you know, we talk in the in the Tibetan Indo Tibetan tradition about uh, there's uh, different stages of like the mind to start is like a raging river, and then the river you know becomes uh, uh, the spattering waterfall and then then the water you know the water moves it, it it calms down but it's still flowing and then it becomes like an ocean and and there's this this sense of gradual you know and then i think the ocean just kind of is perfectly still and maybe even just vanishes i don't remember all the details of that metaphor but the point is um yeah that that, that a lot of the kind of what you're getting at is the same and i think that extends to the um this question of doctrinal content to some extent. I mean, what, what's interesting to me is, uh, you know, as, as you said, I mean, it's always been emphasized, as I understand it, from really the earliest days. What is the Dharma? To go back to that beginning question, what is the Dharma? Well, the Dharma is what the Buddha taught. Well, what did the Buddha teach? On one level, he taught, you know, words, and we have records of those words, and those are very precious and very valuable and very helpful. And if you follow those words, you will you know, you'll have you'll have better results for yourself and everyone you love in this life and beyond. Um, on another level, while um, those words are important and you can't ever really get away from them, yeah, I mean, the kind of like the Dharma is also means this, it really means ultimate truth and in, in, in from a certain perspective. And, and of course, that ultimate truth cannot be limited to thought or language. And um, so then there's this kind of tension, this, I think, very productive and interesting tension between this sense of dharma as ultimate reality, ultimate truth, this, this wisdom that the Buddha attained and then tr transmitted that we're still you know, able to access because we still live in a world, in a cosmos system where you know, the blessings of Shakyamuni Buddha are, are still around. Um, but then, then there's, you know, then there's this dharma in the sense of, you know, these teachings about things like uh, reincarnation, which I, I've heard, and I'm, I'm, I'm curious, um, Storm, to hear your take on, because I don't know, I, 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 my understanding is Zen at least de-emphasizes that aspect of things. Um, certainly in Sanskrit and like Tibetan Buddhism, that's not the case. It's very heavily emphasized, and and I, I think, I mean, for me personally, it's, it's really not only non-negotiable um, and really it's not a belief, it's a fact. It's, it, it's also like the whole framework, the whole way of thinking about like what the Buddhist path is and how it works and why it works. It just kind of falls apart without reincarnation. So when I, when I see like Evola, let me see if I can pull this up real quick. He says, um, do, do, do. He has some interesting observations. He says for the, on the one part, like he, he notes that, um, uh, reincarnation is, is there's no I I mean this is one of the foundational teachings of Buddhism of course there is no I there is no Atman so um, what are you even talking about when you're talking about reincarnation um, but then he says he goes on 
On the subject of, quote, this is page 179, 180. He says, on the subject of reincarnations and of many lives, we must remember that in spite of the opinions held in some circles, such ideas find no place in serious traditional teachings, Eastern or Western, nor therefore in Buddhism. That's just not true. But anyway, those passages in Buddhism and in the Indo-Aryan traditions in general that would seem to indicate the contrary do so either because of a too literal reading of the texts, whatever that means, or because they are popular forms of exposition that only have a symbolical value, rather like the crude images of the Christian purgatory or hell that are common among simple folk. To accept unquestioningly all that can be found in the Buddhist texts on the subject of preceding existences not only opens the way to all sorts of contradictions and incoherences on the doctrinal level, which I disagree he doesn't specify, uh, but also breeds doubts as to the efficacy of the historical Buddha's real supernormal vision. The stories in the canon, and particularly in the Jataka, which are the tales of the past lot of Buddha in his past lives before he attained Buddhahood, um, before he was born as Siddhartha, in other words, uh, of the presumed previous existences of Prince Siddhartha, yeah, okay, notably in the form of animals, are all evidently of a fabulous nature, and even when their origin is not wholly spurious, it is easy to see that they have been invented or introduced into Buddhism from already existing popular traditions for pedagogic use to illustrate and enliven discourses. We do not find in the text a single serious reference to anything like a memory, like an actual fact of the past seen by supernormal means and then communicated. Here also the awakened one maintains his silence. And again, that's just that's just not true. There's all kinds of like stuff about memories of past lives. So I'm not really sure what he's talking about, but I'm, I wanted to throw that out there and see what you all had to say, but especially of course, Storm um, giving the Zen thing. Okay, let me put it to you this way. Now, and I'll tell you something, if you're in doubt about, you know, you meet somebody and you're in doubt if you're talking uh, to a real Zen person or someone with a wrong understanding who hasn't attained anything, if you talk to them long enough, you might hear them say, re respond to something you say with, that's Buddhism, not Zen. So this is in true Zen iconoclast fashion. Think of it this way. The Buddha taught, and you were talking about this earlier, he taught two things. He taught Zen and he taught Buddhism. When he held up the flower, he was teaching Zen, right? When he gave his words, he was teaching Buddhism. And they're really not, they're really not different because you know, Chan, Zen, Jhana, it's all it's all the word for enlightenment. So you can think of Zen as uh, okay, let's say you had you're gonna build a wall, right? So you've got a hammer and a bunch of nails. So you can uh, you can take a hammer and hammer them in one by one, or you can take a pneumatic nail gun and do it really, really good, really fast and intensely. So Zen is it's interestingly kind of hyper specialization is a modern thing, but it is Zen is extremely hyper specialized on you getting that experience for yourself. Everything else is 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 a secondary concern, but it's much it's much more of, of seen as a secondary concern than in other schools. So you know, Zen is hyper focused on that. I'm really glad you brought up that passage, Dharmakirti. I had it underlined as well, and <laughs> I was planning on reading it uh, for the podcast and then asking you what your take on it was. In fact, <laughs> little note in my margin: ask DK his take Be because um, I I was similarly confused. I'm like, where are you getting this from, Evelyn? Because you know, most of this again, most of the stuff that he says, I can whether or not I agree with all of it, I can see where he's getting it from. You know, yeah. And in this case, it's noticeable. Like, where are you even? Yeah, exactly. I was like, what are you talking about, bro? Like, I don't even. There's understand no footnotes. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 
Yeah. Um, yeah, because usually he, and ha- I, it's true. he also has a lot of foot. He's like, this is from the Deegan Nikaya, whatever. This is from the Majima Nikaya, whatever. This is from the, you know, uh, Guter Nikaya, whatever. This is like, there's no reference here to anything. Yeah, I don't know what, what he's And And you, you cut short one, one sentence before what I was going to read. And the following sentence after you finished where you say, here also the awakened one maintains his silence. Evola goes on, in any case, the classical and dryly glittering spirit of original Buddhism, so free of sentimentalism, is rarely found in the later texts, beginning with the Jataka, uh, blah, 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 and he, he goes on some more. But that phrase, the dryly glittering spirit of original Buddhism, really stuck out to me um, for complex reasons. On the one hand, I quite like it. Uh, it's, it's very evocative, and I think it's good writing, even in translation. Um, but I think that, I think it was last week that Kagi was talking about how he, and actually Storm was too, uh, about how he's kind of j- jamming this sense of elitism into the text where it doesn't really necessarily exist. And I somewhat defended Evola, you know, based on his, his philosophical priors and everything. And, and in any case, I do know what he means by this classical and dryly glittering spirit, but I also, at the risk of psychologizing a little bit here, and uh, I'm not trying to pump myself up as better than Evola or more enlightened or anything, but you know, when you first really start getting into serious meditation and you do it um, regularly every day, it's very common for people to get into a phase, and many teachers talk about this, where there's a little bit of a little bit of the color drains out of the world, not because, not because you know things are becoming disenchanted in the world, but just because so much of your engagement with the world is colored by these crazy inner, you know, uh, fermentations, as they say in the text. This, you know, all these crazy thoughts that you have going on in your mind. When if you start to get them a little bit quiet, there can be a, a phase where your mind like is. You know, it's like if you were watching crazy videos all day and then you turned off the TV and it was just this black screen. It's it, it's a little bit scary almost. And it's but if you if you keep first of all, I don't I think some people don't have that experience. And second of all, for people who do have that experience, if you keep going, then there is this re-enchantment of the world and then and it's incredibly richer. And you realize that the stupid, you know, it's like you turn off the TV and start looking out the window. So yeah, the TV is black, you know, and it's boring and, and empty and black. Uh, but that then once you move past that, you start looking out the window and you're like, oh my God, the real world is so much more beautiful than that stupid video I've been watching in my head. It, I, I know I'm stretching metaphors here, but I, I think you guys follow me, hopefully. And when he said that dryly glittering spirit, I almost was wondering, I'm like, Evola, did you just like not meditate long enough? You know, like, did he, did he just get to this phase where, where the world just becomes disenchanted because you've lost, you've, you've lost your intoxication with your own fantasies. Uh, but you, you haven't gone far enough to start realizing like what, what, how good real clarity can feel. Not to claim that I have real clarity, but do you guys know what I'm talking about? Yeah, no, I think I, I, I see this also as related. He had, um, something, earlier if I can find it about um basically he doesn't like deities. He doesn't like um yeah, God yeah, yeah. or divine figures. Um and so he says, you know, uh here we go. 
This is page 154, 155. It says, in the course of the development of Mahayana, and I'll, I'll get back to the reincarnation question, but I wanted to continue on this thread for a second. He says, in the course of the development of Mahayana Buddhism, there appear outright personifications of the jhana, of the Zen, as so many mythological Buddhas, and divinities of all kinds take the place of the various planes of contemplative and transcendental realizations. It is of importance, particularly in connection with this kind of literature, to understand clearly what is the right point of view. On the one hand, the psycholo quote, psychologistic interpretation must be avoided. When one is in the jhana or similar states, the center of one's own being, if even if only for a time, is, quote, elsewhere. In worlds different from that perceived by the usual waking consciousness, and one is not undergoing a process that has a merely subjective value. On the other hand, when the presentation, particularly in later Buddhism, is objective and almost theological, with reference to divinities and cosmic or celestial hierarchies, then stripping off the mythology, the what, like again, what does that even mean? The matter must be understood in its essential form as a function of states of consciousness, of transcendental experiences. This holds good not only of doctrine, but also in cases of genuine apparitions. Such possible apparitions are only, quote, projections. That is to say, exteriorized forms of particular states that are experienced. And the personification takes place on the basis of images fixed in the mind or in the subconscious of the individual who is practicing. Thus, Tibetan Buddhism goes as far as admitting that in a particular phase of practice, the Buddhist can see the Buddha transformed into a Mahayana god, which that's not quite accurate, but it's close enough, whatever, just as a Christian will see the Christ or a Muslim Muhammad. Everyone supplies the image that he has himself cultivated or that he has received from his samsaric tradition as the mode in the guise of a form, an image, or an apparition in which he experiences a particular state of ascetic or initiatory consciousness. In connection with both the jhana and with other states of experience, it is therefore important to achieve a point of view that is higher than the ontological theological as well as the psychologistic or spiritualistic attitude. Only such a superior point of view can conforms to reality and be suffused with taste, with taste knowledge. That's not, I think I, uh, anyway, it doesn't matter. So, I mean, there's a, the, the, I, I the throw problem, in at the beginning that certain, I, certainly that what he's describing does happen on one level, but I don't think it's the only thing that happens. If I can that's right. Well, this is this is more in the level of like, unlike his discussion of reincarnation, which is basically just wrong, and I don't know what he's talking about. I know what he's talking about here, and he's not entirely wrong. It, it, but uh, because it's true, and I think it needs to be emphasized. And you know, anyone who has any experience, or even really any, like if you start poking around, looking into um, Tibetan Buddhist deity yoga, which is really just a, I, I, I will firmly say it's just a just an extension of um, deity practice from India, tantric practice from India, which again, you know, it's not like Buddhists invented this. This is a ritual technology that was uh, kind of co-emerged between Buddhism and various non-Buddhist traditions, some of which probably emerged initially not in Buddhist traditions and then adapted um, as a ritual technology to for Buddhist use. But the point is, um, from a Buddhist perspective, and especially from, from a kind of like, you know, the, the, just, you know, there's no, there's no one who's going to tell you, like, um, that Tara, for example, or, 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 or uh, you know, uh, Vajrasattva or um, any of these tantric deities are, like, not your mind. There's no one who's going to tell you that it's, like, not your nature. 
that what you're, and, and this is why, you know, again, as they say in, in Tibet, you know, a pra, uh, accomplishing one deity is accomplishing all deities because your nature and the deity's nature are not different things. That's why the practice works, like yeah. mechanically. Terra um, is not real. Yeah, right, exactly. So, but that's not to say that there isn't a, like, an enlightened being that is Tara that we can pray to that does stuff. Because there is. Like, and, and the whole, like, so, I mean, it's, it, and if you think about it too long or too hard, I mean, this is, I guess, I mean, I, I could, like, sit down and explain it over the course of an hour, maybe, based on my own understanding, which is probably, I'm sure, partially wrong, but it would maybe give you a better sense of, like, how this is supposed to work. But it doesn't matter. What you need to do is sit down and shut up and visualize yourself as Tara and do the goddamn practice. Like, you <laughs> know what I mean? Like, it, nothing else is going to help you. And, Can and, you and imagine? That's why what yeah. one of these Zen masters would have done had Avola gone into all that shit, he would have been <laughs> right in his face. Right in his yeah. face. Yeah, exactly. Same thing, yeah. Yeah, so, so that's what I'm saying. It's like, I, and, and yeah, you definitely get the sense that, you know, he may have dabbled or he may have done something, but he clearly didn't, he wasn't willing to set his ego to the side, not, not to the extent he really needed to. And he may or may not have really had the, dis I mean, he can certainly, he certainly intellectually understands what it means to have the discipline um, I, 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 you know, who knows if he actually did have the discipline to, to really sit down and practice. And, and yeah, I mean, that's again, another thing people will say is like, you know, yes, at a certain level people, I mean, masters, you know, um, yes, really all you need is ultimate truth meditation. Can you do that? If you could do that, you know, waking, sitting, sleeping, dreaming, eating, shitting all the time, then great. If you can't do that, you, you, you know, you need to go do all this up. You need to make offerings. You need to like ask for Vajrasattva to bless you with purifying your negative karma. And if you, and if you do, and the thing is, even the masters that are in that kind of state in the, that are, you know, the, the, there's no difference to them between meditative equipoise and post meditation. They're doing Vajrasattva mantras. Also, they're making offerings. Also. I mean, it's, it's like a part of the uh, enlightened experience. If you want to, you know, quote unquote experience, whatever experience means, in that kind of a context, it, it's part of what it means to, to be awakened in this way is to do these practices, is to have this discipline, is to to do these kind of exoteric things. This 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 division that we have, I think this is something, and, and you know, maybe in some to some extent it's a critique of Evola. Really, it's more of a critique of like this kind of mind-body dualism strangeness that we've been on this kick for a couple hundred years in the West. I, I really see this as an extension of this, is that like awakening is something that happens with your mind. And these exoteric, you know, generosity practices, giving and, and doing stuff is something you do with your body. And so we're going to like superiorize, you know, the, we're going to, we, 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 we valorize the one over the other. Um, social justice warriors do the same thing. They just do it the other way around. They're like, you know, well, well, all this, this you know, and like awakening is a, is a male power fantasy. Um, so you know, go out and, you know, donate to Planned Parenthood or something. I don't know. Um, I'll say um, about Evola. He didn't break through. He didn't have realization. What he got to was some lower mid states of bliss and mistook that for liberation. And this is this yeah. is why we see him go to that point. He sort of goes up to that point and then intellectualizes that and comes back down with this understanding and then up and down from there. He never really broke all the way through uh, for me. You know, and you can't really not tell. Book, maybe. We don't we don't know. But um, well, you can't really yeah. tell just from reading someone's words. Um whether or yeah. not they were enlightened. You really have to meet them in my experience. But I agree, but he also, I don't think if he were enlightened that he would have 
I, I see things a lot these days, and I could be maybe this is just a kick I'm on, but I see things in terms of like conditions of possible, like conditions of possibility, transcendental in a Kantian sense, almost in terms of like structurally how are things put together, and I think structurally things are put together in such a way that like he he couldn't be writing this book if he had had like the kind of transcendental experience and and and, and achieved his stability in that experience, right? That, yeah. That, from yeah. a Buddhist perspective that, that we're aiming at. That's what I would say. Um, Can I? Yeah, please. Um, well, I just, I did this whole spiel at the beginning about how, hey, you guys can ask us questions and we'll actually address them. Um, and now we have some hanging out there in the chat. Uh, maybe uh, before we do that, can I, I just want to circle. I, I want to do that real quick. Yeah, I just want to circle back because you asked about my thoughts on the reincarnation thing. Well, uh, yeah. Sorry. Yes. Um, I think with Evola that the, the the whole thing about his reincarnation is it goes back to his pre-existing worldview that he kind of is working yeah. with, where he sees there being like kind of this one kind of heroic sort of person who can access these higher doctrines and that the majority of people are essentially NPCs and have no spiritual ability. And so anything that goes, that I guess he would see reincarnation or rebirth as being a rejection of this pre-existing worldview. And so since it does, he just is kind of pushing it away or he maybe, I think once acknowledges that storehouse consciousness might exist. I'm trying to, I, I, I wasn't don't able to recall anything reference. to that effect, maybe. Uh, yeah, I mean, he seems to, he, he just, I think he has this, I, I think to, to be blunt, um, the, I think the, the problem is he's come, he really has a warrior mindset. I mean, to yes. him, it really is like about, this kind of battlefield mentality. And in terms of this kind of heroic Indo-Aryan perspective, you know, battlefield sacrifice is less meaningful in a context where there is more to existence than this single life. The, the, I think the element of heroism, the element of like narrative um, drama and pathos comes out because of the like uniqueness, the, the kind of absolute uniqueness narratively of the human life. I, I think that's what at a certain level is motivating his critique of the Jataka as well is because like, um, I mean, again, it's not that he's wrong that there are these kind of like other, you know, I'm sure there's a lot of folklore in there and so on, um, which is not to say that, it, which is not to say that the folklore is also like not correct in, in saying that this is what actually happened. But the point is that, um, when you sort of like have, I actually never read it, but I, I, I know Cloud Atlas is kind of like this about kind of the same quote unquote continuum of being that exists in multiple rebirths or reincarnations to some extent. And so like, that's just a very different narrative framework. It, it, it is really not um, the, it, it's, I, I would, what I would say, I don't know that I would say that it's not Indo-Aryan. It's certainly not Greco-Roman. It's not European. It's not how we as, Westerners in the post-Renaissance uh, world think of heroism, think of narrative structure. It kind of explodes our whole idea of narrative structure to think in those terms. And, and so I, I think it's really kind of more at that level that his, that his problem exists rather than, because it, it's, it's a laughable reading of the Buddhist scripture. There's just absolutely no way that that's a justifiable interpretation. And Philosophically, I mean, I mean, you know, I could get into this at another time, maybe, but you know, philosophically, there's very, um, I think, convincing reasoning to the effect that yes, reincarnation is just a fact. It's just how things work. It's how samsara is put together, um, and and yeah, the whole kind of Buddhist ethical framework and the whole way of like, you know, and, and so that's what I'm saying. I don't think there's ever been a Buddha 
I don't think there's a Buddha that could appear and teach other than that, you know, death is not the end. Any individual death is not the end of your uh, psychophysical continuums existence that, that that would just because that explodes karma it, which then exp it just explodes everything it just doesn't really work yeah for, i mean it would, be, it would be it would be it would be i mean it's it's yeah it's, it's literally not I mean, when, exactly when in, in, in buddhist the, the in, in in indic buddhism the like the two big things that are wrong are yeah it's not you can say nihilism and eternalism which at a certain level nihilism can be interpreted ontologically as like saying that nothing is that not just that things are empty but that they're really just not existent at all but really, historically, the term comes, it's not really nihilism, it's annihilationism, which is essentially a, 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 the position that there is no such thing as karma, that death is the end, and our negative and positive actions in this life don't have any effect once we're dead. And, that, and that's just wrong. That's just not true. Yeah. So, I mean, it's, it's pretty much like, if you dig into this at all, there's no way you can say Evola is right in any way about his view on reincarnation. You, you basically cannot yeah. have Buddhism without it. it it's... It's it's yeah. almost by definition a wrong view. No, not almost. That is literally by definition <laughs> right. a wrong view. That's like the wrongest of views. That's the uh, well, wrong view in the like in the eightfold in the in the sorry right view in the uh, eightfold path noble eightfold path is the opposite of wrong view, which is one of the ten non-virtuous actions. And like the paradigmatic wrong view is that there is no that there's karma and cause and effect doesn't work. So yeah. It's interesting way, that you oh, go ahead. Uh, okay, yeah. Um, one way you can think about reincarnation. Um, so, so what is the consciousness of a Buddha like? It's it's unconditioned. It's completely free of attachment, and therefore, there's nothing that you. It has no property other than being consciousness. So, what is there that isn't a Buddha? I mean, that there's your reincarnation, <laughs> right? There's your reincarnation, right? Sure. There. Yeah, 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 yeah. No, that that's absolutely right. But that's again, that kind of more rarefied perspective, which like, yes, it's right, yeah. I mean that, you know, and, and, and that's, but that's, that's fine for me, but there's all this, you know, people that want more kind of like mechanical explanations. Yeah. Like, people, well, people want to know how it works. Like what is yeah, it like? Yeah. And, and, and I, and it's interesting to say like for Zen clearly, you know, it's like, well, if you want to do that, go do something else. We're trying to like get there. You know, we're, we're not interested in that so much. Yeah. I, that, I absolutely. I, that's, that's the spirit yeah. of the whole thing. Yeah. Okay, so or you wanted to get to I I agree. We we've been going on a bit and uh, yeah, we got think, good think, questions. We got some great questions. So uh, yeah, we got. You want to we're getting go in order? Yeah, or how do you want to? Yeah, let's just start going order order um, because a couple of these will be easier to answer than others. Um, the cert who uh, made the comment earlier about Dhamma versus Dharma uh, says, when Evola says that cyclical history, yugas and the like, are part of samsaric consciousness, do you think he is correct? Uh, I'll answer first. I, to be honest, I don't recall that exactly. Um, I think it just means general, that there are ages, like there are, like there yeah. is a Kali Yuga. Is that yes, I would say. I agree. Yeah, I would say that yes, um, I agree. It, it, samsara consciousness is essentially everything that's conditioned, everything that we <laughs> we see around us, anything that's Boom. not. Uh, yeah, <laughs> Moo. Uh, everything that's not Nirvana is samsara. Uh, Please don't pick apart my words too much, guys. I'm, I'm <laughs> trying to paraphrase. No, no, no it's fine. It, uh, yeah. And so even things that that might be asserted as eternal truths of the world as it is manifested now. So thing, you know, really grand narratives like the yugas and everything. Uh, from 
a very conventional point of view, those things are sort of, you could call them semi-eternal, but from a Dharmic perspective, even those sort of semi-eternal things are part of samsara. So I would agree, uh, if Evola is asserting that, I would agree with that. Uh, the second question from the cert is, would you consider Vajrayana part of the Mahayana? I'll let the Mahayana guys, or the Vajrayana guys answer, but yeah, it, my it quick is answer is that historically it's considered yes. Yeah, it's 100%. I mean, the Vajrayana is basically, as I was sort of alluding to earlier, is a ritual technology. It is it is adapting a particular kind of ritual or several actually different modes of ritual technology to the use, to the ends of the Mahayana. So, so yeah, it's it's just a sub. The, the motivation is the Mahayana motivation. The result is the Mahayana result. It's 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 really just a question of practice because in the Mahayana, the practice is is the great is the six perfections without really um, any, which is a generosity, discipline, patience. Uh, <laughs> generosity. Oh, this is embarrassing. Generosity, discipline, patience, uh, vigorous energy, wisdom, and samadhi, meditative concentration. Um, and and there aren't real. I mean, there's you can talk about these a lot, but there isn't you know really necessarily much beyond yes, be generous, yes, be patient, yes, be kind, yes, you know, work, you know, maybe you know, develop your meditation, but it's not very specific. Whereas in the Vajrayana, they're like really specific, really detailed methods it, the, the, it's a question of method but the but it's it's a subset of mahayana yeah and i mean it relies on the same mahayana thinkers so nagarjuna and <laughs> yeah all the same guy yeah exactly. so the world is almost guy. exactly the same will wilhelm's uh comments mazu said that the dharma was telling a child that yellow leaves were gold to stop them from crying uh i don't know who is mazu mazu is a chinese investor from the golden age will is my boy will gets it um <laughs> awesome <laughs> it, this is a, basically a, a more poetic way of saying what we were saying earlier about the two truths and and you know here mazu saying the dharma in the sense of like the noble eightfold path and like ah i feel bad why don't i feel bad this is why you feel bad this is how to you know that's that's what he's elucidating there and i skipped over one uh which is a an interesting one um sig oder Toad says what are your opinions on... <laughs> sorry yeah <don't. laughs> that's all right uh, i'm about to do a japanese word so you can correct me on that one too it's sokushinbutsu sokushinbutsu which is um mummies essentially yeah mummies uh sort of uh, meditation masters going into like oh purposeful self-mummification upon death we have the same thing and, and yeah we uh yeah, yeah, that's interesting. Yeah, Tukta. that's not a Japanese. I mean, that's a Japanese word for it, but it is not a, a purely Japanese phenomenon. You find that in Tibet. Uh, you find that in other in China. I know. Uh, I, I don't know. I mean, my opinions on it. That's a that's a broad question. But I uh, first thing I'll just say, just to go back to our magic uh, episode and everything. The first thing I would say is that they're real. Uh, maybe there are some fakes out there or something, but this this can be done. The energies in the body and in the mind are capable of things that would that seem like magic uh when you're stuck in a very uh, narrow you know when you're stuck in a very narrow path of this light but uh the, the masters doing these incredible things i think um absolutely are real what's the value of it and all that i don't know i mean i'd, I'd have to look into it more but um I, yeah i don't know another part of that ability is that these people follow a, a strict healthy diet and they're just in an extreme state of bodily health. I would also say they're of, probably also ma 
they're also no fap, you know. Oh yeah, totally. Yeah. Which is a real thing that everyone should do. My opinion. <laughs> Any other comments no, I, on the on the mummy? Yeah. They're no, very I mean, fascinating. I, I reckon anybody who's into it, I recommend looking into it. It's it's pretty. They're interesting recent. Case, cases from just a couple of years ago of Tibetan master doom. I mean, you can see pictures on Facebook and stuff. It's it's absolutely not. I don't. Uncommon is the wrong. It, it, it's not like we don't have you know evidence of this or that there is some kind of like, you know, oh, this used to happen, but it doesn't happen anymore. No, there was no, one no. in Mongolia right before the revolution there, if I recall correctly. Yeah. Yeah. Yun Min's mummy was at his was in. Sorry, go on. I was, Yun Min's mummy was at his monastery until Chairman Mao. Uh, oh. Yeah. The pictures of Yun Min's uh, mummy, uh, he looks healthier than a lot of like bug men that are <laughs> theoretic, <laughs> theoretically alive right now, you know? There's a that I was talking earlier about uh, the Tibetan master that we had as our picture. You'll have to remind me again, Dharma Kirti. What's his name? Uh, Tenger, you guys about Tenger Rinpoche? I believe he was in Tukdom yeah. for like a month or two or something. I mean, he was that, that was just a couple of years ago. No, I mean, um, um, our 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 avatar. My avatar is Dharma. No, sure no, 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 no. For the show. For, for the show. The picture oh, that comes oh, up. Uh, yeah. Uh, Kensei Chuki Lodro. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I was talking before about what a radiant face he had, um, and yeah. I you can Yunmen has that too. And again, uh, that it, you compare that to like the sallow face of somebody who's theoretically alive. It, <laughs> the contrast is quite striking. Yeah, Yunmen's mummy uh, is less ugly than the people I see when I go to Publix. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> Wall Martian. Uh, I'll keep powering through these. I mean, you guys just cut me off at any point, but uh, Yogurt asks, "Did I do something in a past life that allowed me to graduate to human?" Or is it just a roll of the dice? There's no such thing as roll of the dice. Human birth is the most precious, most precious human birth endowed with the 18 freedom advantages, which anyone listening to this podcast has, is the most precious birth in the universe. It is also exceedingly rare as a result of an unfathomable amount of good works that you've done in the past that allowed you to be born in a human body, not just any human body, that a but a human body that's capable of understanding enough to be able to like connect with these teachings even if you're skeptical even if you're not a buddhist whatever you have incredible good fortune by the fact that you're listening to this right now and and yeah it's not something to be taken for granted yeah it, it is urgent that you take care of this I would say that it wouldn't be wrong to say that there's no such thing as pure accident when it comes to your rebirth. Maybe in the sense of when it occurs, like when the karma flowers, it may be a bit of a roll of the dice, but it's never purely an accident. Yeah, I like. Uh, I agree with everything you guys just said, and I, I really like the way you phrased it, Dharma Kirti, and um, just coming right out and saying it boldly and truthfully like that. It's one of the most positive, awesome messages of Buddhism that often doesn't get remarked upon enough in the West, partially because the question of reincarnation is, you know, di difficult for a lot of people, which is understandable because it's not really part of our mm, intellectual tradition. Uh, but yeah, the teaching of Buddhism is exactly what Dharmakirti said, which is that it is an incredibly rare, incredibly valuable thing. And you did innumerable good things in order to be born a human. So, uh, Thoughts on Advaita Vedanta from yeah, Bhutani? I, <laughs> I wish I had more concrete ones. I, I know a, a very little. I mean, no, people would say, 
that Shankara was Adi Shankara, who's the founder of Advaita Vedanta, was sort of a crypto Buddhist. Um, from the little that I have studied, that seems about right. Um, the Advaita Vedanta tradition gets crapped on by like the other quote unquote Hindu and Vedanta traditions because um, yeah, I mean, it, it sort of ends up being very much like like Buddhism. I, I do think that they like the the the, stick, the major sticking point is the the Atman um this self in other words but uh yeah it, it's uh it's a very profound system hinduism quote unquote i mean hinduism like the word hinduism is also kind of complicated for reasons i won't mention here so much but uh you know dharmic religions Jain, there's a lot to recommend jainism um i think you know if you read like the mahabharata or the ramayana like it, it, classical indian civilization is um just incredibly rich. Uh, it, it, it's rich in a way that, um, you know, I, I, I don't know, I find personally very moving and, and very beautiful. Um, and, and definitely they have a lot going on. I, I, I think that at the end of the day, it is missing. Uh, I, I think that Buddhism kind of completes, <laughs> completes the system, <laughs> you know, it completes the system of Indian idealism. Um, oh, man. oh my God. <laughs> 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 no, unironically, German idealism is uh, and Kant are ridiculous. They're ridiculous. Yeah. That is a huge problem in the Western, uh, we'll have Western to, intellectual yeah. tradition. Yeah, we'll, yeah. we'll clear that up. We'll do that another episode. But yeah, I agree. I mean, there's uh, it's it's worth picking apart. Um, yeah, those are my thoughts on Advaita Vedanta. Anyway, it's it seems like Vedanta is very subtly different from Buddhism, but very similar in terms of its metaphysical worldview. Um, if there is one thing, the Atman properly understood tr it it almost seems kind of like very it, it, i i get some impression of it being kind of like parmenides idea on being but itself the atman doesn't seem to have any intrinsic content so i mean really if you carry that to its natural conclusion don't you arrive at something like emptiness well interestingly the the uh, atman having no intrinsic content echoes sartre where being is nothingness pure nothingness <laughs> which is kind of cool that is I, almost like That's they always. The oh yeah, and I remember one. There's one other thing. Uh, also, the if I recall correctly, Vedanta, Advaita Vedanta holds that the it's um, just Satya Karivada that it's, the effect that the effect exists in the cause, pre-exists in the cause, uh, which is not compatible with Buddhist ontology. And Nagarjuna <laughs> having a fit over that. Yeah, I know, right? Yeah, it's uh, going to be very spurgy on the on the on, on the intellectual side. Uh, there is also that difference, um, but anyway. But yeah, you have to dig really deeply into actually find where they are different, which is kind of interesting. Yeah, and so then, okay, so then, uh, last question. I don't know. We have a question about thoughts on Baron von Ungern Sternberg's War Buddhism. I don't know what that is. Uh, let me see if I can find it. Quickly, do we? Does any? Do any of you know about that? Is yeah, I think he's. I mean, he is referring to Baron von Ungern Sternberg, who. Um, yeah, I mean, you are familiar with. I, yeah, like vaguely, I, but I, I don't know what he thought about Buddhism. What is his idea of Buddhism? Um, <laughs> it, it's actually really difficult. Wait, to no, wait, first of all, wait, who is, who is this guy? At? Ungern Sternberg is a white Russian warlord who liberated Mongolia from the Chinese, and he was rather fond of Vajrayana Buddhism. So okay. apparently he was right, like raised Lutheran, but became attracted to Vajrayana, and he liberated the Bokh Khan, set him back up as the ruler of Mongolia. 
And I mean, it's difficult to say anything about him because there's no reliable like text. You have some which are claiming that he was some kind of lunatic who would brutally torture his enemies to death. And then you have others who are arguing that he was a little bit more sedated than that. Yeah, they called him the Mad Baron. Yep. Uh, interesting. Evola did actually write a little bit about him. There's an article that he, there was an article I think he wrote in the 1950s. And he, it was actually, I think he was really one of the only two political figures of the 20th century he seemed to be unambiguously um, supportive of, which is interesting. The other one being Cornelio Cadrianu, interestingly enough. Hmm. What did he say about Buddhism? What was his war of Buddhism? Do you know, do you know what that is? Um, Maybe we can... It, 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 you know, the thing is, when he says war Buddhism, I mean, he, it, it's, it, it almost seemed like it was kind of a um, mixture of Christian estological framework with a idea that, like, if you got rid of reds and other kinds of people, that you were doing them a favor by allowing them to reincarnate. So it, it was kind of an, I mean, it was kind of a, it, a bit of a warped opinion of its own. I wouldn't say... Assuming that the historical records are correct, he had a he had the correct understanding of it either. But so I mean, given if he's a warlord, that's probably um, probably right. No, um, good question. I don't know anything about this guy, so I'm gonna I'm gonna take that take some time to read up on it in the future. So no, I mean, I would say that I mean, from assuming that historical records about him are correct, and I mean, that's kind of a. Uh, that's kind of a that's that's somewhat of an assumption because he was, I think, kind of the victim of a lot of of uh, red propaganda against him. Um, I would say that it's not really the correct interpretation of Buddhism. Like we've said before, it's not that Buddhism rejects war as a whole, but it does have to be. I mean, some of the things that he's recorded as having done, like brutally killing communists, it, it, are are excessive. His idea that you can just kill people and that you're doing them a favor by allowing them to reincarnate, also wrong. But I mean, again, it's 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 difficult to say whether or not any of those are actually representative of what he really thought. Okay. Well I think that probably answers that question to the extent uh, we can at this point. So um, that's probably I think that's enough. Uh, do we have any closing thoughts? Anything anybody want to say anything before we before we go? I was going to read excerpt at the end, but you guys can Please. go first and I'll close it up. No, I, I'm, I've talked enough. Okay. <laughs> I'm good. Okay, so I'm going to read a passage from the Blue Cliff record. Uh, it was compiled in the late Song Dynasty, uh, and it's it's a koan collection. Um, so here's here's the case, and I'll set it up for you. Uh, Nansen, also called Nanchuan, he's a very famous Zen master from the, from the uh, Gateless Gate, and he's the one who cut the cat in half. So here is the case. Um, an officer from the Chinese government is talking to not to Nansen. As the officer Lu San was talking with Nansen, he said, Master of teachings, heaven, earth, and I have the same root. Myriad things and I are of one body. This is quite marvelous. Nansen shook his head and pointed to a flower in the garden. He called to the officer and said, people these days see this flower as a dream. And I'll leave you with that. <laughs> Thank you, as always, Storm, for that lovely koan. Uh, is that is that also considered a koan? I, I always yes. say that, but okay. yes, it is. It is. Yeah. Okay. There's a pointer as well um, by the compiler if you want to hear it. Please, yes. <laughs> so this is after the case, and it's sort of a little bit of explication. <laughs> Cease and desist. 
Then an iron tree blooms with flowers. Is there anyone? Is there? A clever lad loses his profits, even though he is free in seven ways up and down and eight ways across. He cannot avoid having another picture up his nostrils. But tell me, is there an error? <laughs> I'll have to I'll have to ruminate on that. The Blue Cliff record is really difficult, yeah, but it, it's it's charming. Yeah, though usually that that's a tough one. I there's the the other ones you've thrown out. I I feel like I have a better handle on that one. Is I'll have to think about. Well, my, um, my my take on this case is that here's here's Officer Luson going through all this rigmarole about doctrine. You know, in his he's a. Uh, in my reckoning appears to be stuck on the dreamlike nature of everything. You can't get sure. a hold of anything. So yeah. Nathan's just like, you think that flower's a dream? Look at it. There it is. <laughs> yeah. Cool. All right. Thank you so much, Storm. Thank you so much, Aura. Thank you so much, Kagu. Thank you again to our audience. Um, please, again, also have any questions or anything. We love engaging with you guys. Um, this is, I think, very beneficial for everyone involved. Um, and we will see you next week. Bye.